This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. All right, good morning. Today we're continuing a series of messages that we've called Community, Made for It, Work for It. And we're going to transition today. We've spent the last couple weeks talking about how we're created for community. Today and over the next couple weeks, we're going to move into what does it look like to actually work to be part of the community that God has for us. Um, We'll come back to that in a minute, though. If if it's okay with you, I'd like to tell you a story that has absolutely nothing to do with what we're about to talk about. But sometimes good stuff happens, and you just want to share it, right? So um, this past Friday night, we had a a worship night at the church that was led by our worship interns, Enrique and Megan, had a a great, great group. Yeah, just did a a great job with that. Um, And so I think, I don't know, there were probably... 75, 100 people or so that came out for that. And it was a great night. Uh, They had asked Rubens Cunha, one of our members, who's also a a missionary evangelist, to kind of take a moment in that service to to pray um, for boldness to share the gospel. Uh, so, So now let me back up about 22 years. 22 years ago, I was 18 years old. It was my senior year of high school. My dad took me on a missions trip to Eritrea, which is a small country on the northeast coast of Africa. While we were there, the missionary took us down on the Red Sea, and we hung out with a nomadic tribe who lived in tents and just traveled around. And he was telling us as we visited them that there had never been a known Christian among that tribe. And so he's telling us this, and I I remember distinctly on the flight back looking out the window and and really kind of God was stirring something in my soul, and and I felt called strongly to be part of taking the gospel to an unreached people group, which at the time I assumed meant that Angie and I would one day be missionaries. And so Angie and I got married. She had a similar calling on her life. We both felt, man, just we're going to be missionaries. And then I graduated seminary, and God called us to Tulsa, Oklahoma which, if you're unaware, is not the center of unreached anything, right? It's the center of reached everything. Like, I drive past 11 churches from my house to Christian Chapel every day. So, um, so we're here. We're youth pastoring. We're loving it still with the long-term goal of we're going to be missionaries. We're going to be missionaries. We're going to be missionaries. We're here for about seven years, and we become the lead pastor here. And then still thinking someday God's going to lead us. Someday God's going to lead us. And, and several years ago, Angie, uh, she mentioned to me, and it, and it really did help me kind of reframe. She said, we, we may do that at some point in the future, but for right now, I think what God is calling us to do is to be a local church that is so passionate about missions that missionaries explode out of our congregation. And so it's a a prayer that we've prayed for for year after year after year. I mean, honestly, going all the way back to when we were youth pastors, we were praying, God, call students from this ministry to be missionaries. And so uh, Friday night, back to the present, Friday night, we're at that worship night, and Rubens is is up here, and he said, uh, if you feel called to missions, if you have that calling on your life, will you come forward? And in a room of under 100 people, I counted, there were 20 people who came and lined up across the front and said, I feel called to missions. And, and as Angie and I were looking, we're trying to figure out, like, how many of these are Christian chapel people? How many are, and as far as we could tell, at least 15 or 16 of those were people we knew who are active parts of Christian chapel who were saying, I feel called by God to give my life to missions. And so I wanted to tell you that today, uh, one, to celebrate God answering prayers, But two, also to encourage you, I know some of you have been praying the same prayers for a long time, and God hears them, and God is working to answer them. 
And in his timing and in his place, you're going to celebrate his answer. And for me, a portion of that, for me and Angie, was Friday night as we sat at the back and saw this, this small army forming of people who want to be launched out to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And, and I believe those prayers are going to continue to be answered, but I believe God answers your prayers as well in every area where you're seeking him and where you're calling him. So uh, we're going to jump into what we're talking about this morning, but that was one, like, I couldn't wait till Kingdom Builders in January to tell you that story. I just, I needed to get it out now. So, uh, uh, today, though, we're going to talk about working towards community and how our experience of community is always a sp- an experience of unity. We'll see what the Apostle Paul teaches us in Ephesians chapter 2 about the, the foundation of unity, how we can confidently live in community with each other. And then we're going to end in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul warns us about the dangers of living in a community that lacks Unity. So Ephesians 2, 1 Corinthians 11, that's where we're going to start. But actually where I want to start this morning is with an article I read last week in New York Magazine. The writer, was his name was Paul Kicks, and he was writing about Alice Roosevelt Longworth. So if you don't enjoy history, it's going to be really short. Just bear with me for a moment, okay? But Alice Roosevelt Longworth, he says, the firstborn daughter of Theodore Roosevelt, former president, just if you didn't know, cheated on her husband the Speaker of the House with the Senator from Idaho, an affair that produced her only child. She supported Nixon in 1960 and the Kennedys and LBJ after that, and then Nixon again in 1968. So again, a little context if you're not. It means that this former president's daughter supported Republican, Democrat, Democrat, Republican. She just flip-flopped whichever way she wanted to. He said she did all of that without losing the approval of polite Washington society, presidents included. So many people paid visits to her house in DuPont Circle that she became known as the Other Washington Monument. And then he says, the secret to her long tenure as the Capitol's grandest dame was her life's motto, which she had embroidered on a sofa pillow. And you can say this with me. If you can't say something good about someone, that's not what hers said. Hers said... If you can't say something good about someone, sit right here by me. She loved to trash people. It was her favorite. We're not speaking ill of the dead. She, there, are, there are numerous accounts of her boasting of being the number one source of gossip in Washington, D.C. for decades on end. Her favorite activity was for you to come and say, I hate this person, and her to say, me too. Tell me why you do. And she built strong friendships off of it. What her story teaches us is something that we still need to be aware of today. Division can form community. In fact, studies have have shown repeatedly that the fastest way to build a friendship with someone else is not over common interests, but over common hatreds or dislikes. And and what actually happens, it's it's very strange, is that if I come to you and we've never met before, I'm like, hey, I'm Chris, and, and I love the Kansas City Chiefs, and you happen to love the Chiefs too, and you're like, great, that's fun, we can talk about it. We're gonna form some kind of connection there. 
If I come to you and say, hey, my name's Chris. I love the Chiefs. And you know what I really hate are the Raiders and the Broncos and the Chargers. And let me tell you why their fan bases are the lowest forms of humanity, right? And, and if I do that, and if you're a, a, an authentic Chiefs fan, you're going to be like, yes, they absolutely are. They should be illegal, right? And, and we're going to have this kind of conversation, and we're going to build a relationship faster over negativity. It works with politics. You can form a friendship because you have mutual support for a candidate candidate, you will form a faster connection over your mutual disdain for an opponent. It works in all types of life. And the, the reason it works is because when you express something negative in a society that values being polite and kind, the expression of a negative thought or belief about another person or institution is actually you telling the other person, I'm being a little vulnerable here. And in that vulnerability, it also proves to them, I'm trustworthy because I'll tell you what I really think, not just what I think you want to hear. And so what we find in our society is we form quick and deep connections over the things that divide us. And if you don't see it, you're just not paying attention. Because it's everywhere you look, it's in every conversation you have, and it can even infiltrate its way into the church. Communities that are supposed to be built around mutual positive experiences can quickly devolve down into we're more known for what we're against and who we don't like. And that's what is the, the primary point of conversation that becomes the primary foundation for our connection. And this type of division is very, very hard to get out of. And the enemy knows it, and it's why he will continue to tempt us. He knows he can't compete with God's community. So his attempt is to divide it and to, in dividing it to ultimately destroy it. Now, the, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we don't have to live this way, that our differences don't have to be a source of division. But instead, our differences can be a place where we appreciate and celebrate the diversity of the body of Christ while also recognizing we're united together. Again, a community is only as strong as the unity that it has. And division can form quick and strong connections, but a divided community will never be the transformational experience that Jesus intends for his church to be on earth. So at some point, we have to move past, we all get along because we don't like anyone else. And we have to find a higher calling. We have to find a higher purpose. We have to find a more sure and certain connection. And this is what Paul offers to us in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 verse 14, Paul is writing about Jesus and he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility." So a, a couple of things that, that we want to recognize here. First of all, Christian community is built off of our common experience of grace in Jesus Christ. Right? So, so there might be other things that you think kind of hold you together this morning. But what actually holds us together 
is our experience of grace in Christ. That's what binds us. That's what keeps us. That's what connects us. That's what holds us with one another. And so Paul begins to tell us the reason that we can have that connection with each other is because we're at peace with God. And through our peace with God, we now also live at peace with each other. Peace and unity are two sides of the same coin. You cannot have unity without having peace. And if you have peace, it will lead you to an experience of unity. Now, again, the enemy knows this. And so his desire is to infiltrate Christian community, to infiltrate churches, and to begin to sow division and to begin to get us to separate over our differences. But Paul is very, very clear. Jesus Christ himself is our peace. And he has destroyed the dividing walls of hostility that separate us from each other. And in himself, he has now created one new humanity. Now again, remember, Paul's writing to a church that is primarily made up of two groups of people. Former Jews who become Christians and Gentiles who become Christians. And they have spent their entire lives being told why they cannot exist together in community. But what Paul says is Jesus has come and he's destroyed the divisions. It doesn't mean there aren't differences, but it does mean there is no division. And he does the same thing for you and I. So in whatever way our culture tries to divide, Jesus comes and destroys that wall that would separate us and that would create hostility between us. And so that means now in the church, there are two types of people. There are Christians and those who are not yet Christians. That's it. There are no other divisions. Now, there are differences in the church. We have different colors of skin. We may speak different languages. We may come from different nations. We may come from different political or educational or economic backgrounds. And we are male. We are female. We are all of these things. But those differences in Christ are no longer a source of division. They're just a reason to celebrate the diversity of God's kingdom. This is what Paul is trying to help us understand. You can experience unity in community because the peace of Christ rules your hearts and minds and exists in your relationships. So I'm at peace with God, so I'm at peace with you. You're at peace with God, so you're at peace with me. And that peace cannot be taken away from us. And, and the enemy knows that, and so his, his attempt then is he can't replace that community. So instead of you having this broad experience of a diverse and unified community, he's going to come and try to highlight some of the divisions between you and other believers and between me and other believers. And he, what he's trying to get us back to is to default to division. And, in, and now you've, you've probably had this experience in life where you, um, you know, maybe there were some old behaviors or habits you were trying to get away from and you were doing all right for a while. And then one day you realized you'd fallen back into all the things you didn't want to do anymore. Right? When I was uh, like 14, 15 years old, I was a skinny little high school kid and I desperately wanted to gain weight. I mean, more than anything, I wanted to gain weight. And I was in the, the weightlifting class at school with the, the older high school football players who all looked like grown men, and I was still on the doorstep of puberty, right? And I was just desperate to be as big as they were and as strong as they were. And all I knew to, knew to do to get there was to eat as much food as I could all of the time. 
And so I almost drove my parents to bankruptcy. I, did, I mean, I ate everything. All, I would eat four, five, six, seven meals a day. If there were leftovers, I ate those. But, but about 14, 15, I adopted my, my favorite weight gaining strategy. Um, and, and I can vouch it still works today. So um, if, if you're in that boat today and you're thinking, I just really want to gain some weight, here's what you do. About 10 o'clock, maybe 10.30 every night, you go to the kitchen, you pull the whole milk, not skim, that's water. Pull the whole milk, <laughs> the whole milk out, and you pour anywhere from 20 to 32 ounces of whole milk into a cup. And then you go to the pantry and you get the package of Oreos out. And, in, and by package, I don't mean those like little self-serve snack packs. I don't mean the Angie will buy the like 100 calorie Oreos. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like the, the Sam's, the Costco family bulk size, like maybe takes two hands to carry it. And then you sit down and you eat until either the Oreos are gone or you can't breathe. Those are the only two options. And so this was my pattern. I would do it every single night, night after night after night after night after night. And, and that was fine as a teenager. That was fine into my early 20s. About my mid-20s, I, I, about 25, my metabolism slowed down. And I noticed that, that those Oreos were now having a different result. About 30, I started to recognize, you know, I probably shouldn't eat, like, a whole package. That's ridiculous. I should just eat a row. And, and <laughs> like, I need some discipline in my life. So I'll stop at a row, you know. And so about 30, and about 35, I mean, I think really close to my 35th birthday, it was like a switch flipped. And if I ate more than, like, five or six, suddenly I couldn't go to sleep at night. I would just lay, I mean, if you're, if you're not there, just wait. That day's coming for you, right? Where you just have this, like, I ate too late. Now I'll never sleep again. Uh, and, and it just, it hit. And so, so I had to make some changes. And so, you know, because I'm very disciplined, obviously, uh, my changes were not to stop. Uh, my changes were just to, like, I'll only grab five cookies and I'll have a 12-ounce glass of milk. And that, that was the, the change that happened. But there have been a few times where if I'm not thinking, I pour the big glass of milk, and I get the whole package of Oreos. And I'm just sitting there, just going about, talking to my family, and I look down, suddenly, a whole row's gone again. What happens? I defaulted to my previous behaviors. And you've had that experience in life as well, when in big ways and small ways and serious things and not so serious things, where you have thought, I'm never gonna do this again, I'm never gonna give in to that again, but then as you quit paying attention, you just fall back into these old habits. You fall back into these old activities. And what Paul is warning us of in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the passage that we're, we're going to move to in just a moment, is that if we're not careful, we will default to division in the local church. And the reason we default to that is not because we're wicked, evil people who just woke up this morning hoping we would be the cancer that ruined a local church. The reason we do it is because division is so thoroughly ingrained in us from our earliest experiences of forming relationships that we just naturally fall back into it. And it's only as we continually surrender ourselves to the authority of Scripture, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and authentic experiences of Christian community that we have the ability to fight against the divisive tendencies of our hearts and instead live in unity together. So we're going to jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul's writing to a church in the city of Corinth that he had helped start. 
And the, the second half of the letter where this portion is, is Paul shifting to answer some questions that they have sent to him and also responding to some reports that he has heard about them. And in 1 Corinthians 11, in this chapter specifically, he's addressing uh, some reports he's heard about the way that they celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper, as he'll refer to it in this passage. And what we'll see is the Corinthians who have been saved, who've been called out of darkness into light, who've experienced the life-changing power of Jesus, who have all of those things and more that you and I have experienced, they are for some reason defaulting back to some of the divisive tendencies of their culture. And in doing so, they're bringing harm to the church. Now, uh, a couple caveats before we jump into this. Um, this is not me preaching a passive-aggressive message because I think Christian Chapel is a divided church. It's not it at all. Right? Angie and I tell when we do that Christian Chapel 101 group uh, several times each semester, we, the first thing we always tell people is what we love about Christian Chapel is it's the healthiest church we've ever been a part of. We don't do church drama. We're not trying to cause church trauma. And we tell every new person who's coming through that group, if that's what you're looking for and that's what you're good at, there are some other churches in town we would be happy to recommend to you where you can go and you can fight and you can yell. You can even cuss a little bit probably about the color of the carpet, the volume of the music, how we do communion, how we do baptism. Why do we have women pastors? Just God bless you. Go fight with someone else. We don't have time for that. So I, I'll make a promise to you and you can hold me accountable for as long as I'm the pastor of Christian chapel, I will never be passive aggressive in addressing division in the church. I will be aggressive. Just, we'll, we'll just put it all out there. And our board will be aggressive and our staff will be aggressive and our home groups will be aggressive because division in the local church is one of the quickest ways to rob us of our experience of community that Christ intended and to ruin our witness in the world. And so today we're going to see what Paul says to a church that is divided and we're going to place ourselves in a position of humility and saying, Lord, if any of this is true of us, convict us, forgive us, and change us. And Lord, if it's not true, then set these just mile markers in our soul that we will remember these things, we will not fall into these traps and these temptations. So, so we're going to jump in, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 11, then I'm going to share with you four warnings from a community without unity, and then we're going to pray, we're going to sign up for home groups, and we're going to live in the type of community that Jesus intends for us. So again, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you have a Bible, we'll start in verse 17. If not, it's going to be here right behind me as well. In the following directives, Paul writes, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So yeah, just in, in case you didn't catch it as you work through there, um, this is not Paul coming to the Corinthians and saying, you're doing a great job, keep going. Right, this is Paul calling them out on their nonsense. 
and speaking directly to them and not just telling them you need to change, but really going into some depth on here is why you need to change. And in doing so, what he's teaching us is here is why divisiveness is such a threat to unity and the community that God intends for us to experience. So the, the first warning that Paul gives us of a community without unity is you do more harm than good. He says in verse 17, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Now, this is the Apostle Paul who loves the scriptures, who loves the gathering of the saints, who tells us that we should worship, that we should express and experience spiritual gifts together, who tells us to surrender our lives to the authority of the scriptures, the presence of Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, when he hears about a local church that is acting in ways that are creating division in the body of Christ, his first response to them is, your meetings do more harm than good. Now, at Christian Chapel, we, we have a little tagline. You hear it every week on the video announcements. Christian Chapel, we believe you're created to be whole. Right? At other churches around town, around the country, everybody has their, their own version of what they think God has called them to do, right? Where their, their, their little slogans or taglines are, are, are things like a place to belong, a place to call home, a, where everyone's welcome, a place to experience the, the life-changing power of Jesus Christ, a place to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. I have never seen a church whose tagline was, we do more harm than good. But this is what Paul's saying, like First Church of Corinth, we do more harm than good. That's what they're known for. And why is that what they're known for? He's saying because they are so divided. And the divisiveness that has taken root in their church, but basically Paul's telling them, I would rather you close the doors of this church than keep doing the things that you're doing right now. I mean, this is direct. This is harsh. It's confrontational. It's aggressive. Why? Because Paul knows a couple things are happening. Divisiveness in the Corinthian church is harming their experience of Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Their divisiveness in the local church is harming their ability to live in community with each other. Their divisiveness is disrupting the peace that Jesus has come to create. And their divisiveness is rebuilding the walls that Jesus has already demolished. And then on top of all of that, their divisiveness is not only ruining their experience, but it's ruining the witness of the gospel in the city of Corinth. And so I believe Paul's message to any divided church today would be the exact same of either get it together or close your doors. Because there is no scriptural precedent for a local church that consumes itself with infighting and division. And again, that's not who we are. Right? I don't believe that's who we are. I don't believe that's who we've ever been at Christian Chapel. But what I believe is if we want to be a community of unity, we need to know the ways the enemy will attack. And the first way he will attack is to divide us according to our differences. And in that space, if we travel down those roads unchecked, we will eventually arrive at a destination where we're told your meetings do more harm than good. It's better for you to just stop than to keep going in this direction you're going. The next warning Paul gives us, he says, you're divided even when you're together. In verse 18, he says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. 
Now that, that last line, verse 19, it's, it's tongue-in-cheek. Paul's saying, of course there have to be differences, so you know which one of you have God's approval. What's, what's he saying to us here? He's saying that the fact that you come together is not proof that you're living in the unity God has for you. Proximity alone will not create unity. You can come and sit in rows with people on a Sunday morning. In the case of the church of Corinth, they could gather in homes around the city, and yet they had no unity because when they came together, their question was not, how can I serve my brothers and sisters and worship with them to achieve the purposes of God in their life and mine and in our community? But Paul says, when you gather together, your primary concern is, how can I prove that I am more important than them? What they wanted to know, and he's giving us hints that he's going to get into very directly in just a moment here, that the primary division in the Corinthian church was not Jew or Gentile. It wasn't racial or political. It was economic. It was rich Christians walking into a gathering of the saints with a sense of entitlement and a belief that they mattered more than their poorer brothers and sisters in Christ. And what Paul is warning them is, hey, just, just because you're together does not mean you're experiencing unity. And again, it's a reminder for us today of just that we come and sit together, that we know each other a little bit, that we recognize some names or faces. It doesn't mean we're living together in unity. And, and in fact, if there are things you recognize in your heart this morning that when you gather with other believers, you're constantly trying to gauge where you fit. Right? Where, how high or how low am I compared to other ones? What Paul is saying is that's not unity. That's not community. That's just you gauging yourself and trying to figure out, should I feel better or worse in this particular group of people? He continues on. He says, when you live in a community without unity, you're living by the standards of culture. In verse 20, he says, so then when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. So again, I told you that the primary point Paul's making is there is economic division in the body of Christ in Corinth. Now, now we can do a little bit of work to understand what he's saying here. So, so the early church, they obviously didn't have buildings like we have. They met in, in homes and small apartments and other things around town. And in the city of Corinth, there were some wealthier Christians. And from, from the context of this passage, it seems like these wealthier Christians were hosting house churches where they would celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But it, it sounds like most of their experience was they would gather together and they would eat a big meal and then they would celebrate communion together at the end. Well, the, the architecture of the time was designed to reinforce some of the Roman beliefs about status. And so, so the way the house was set up was there was a, a large kind of common area, a, an eating room, a living room. It was very comfortable. There would have been cooking and prep areas off in another space. There would have been bedrooms in another space. I mean, very similar in some ways to, to the layout of some of our homes today, where you have a, a larger community space where you gather with guests and family when they come over. But then also the, the Romans would have included a smaller kind of eating area off to the side that was either for their servants or was for poor people in their community that they had invited to eat with them. And so they were welcome in the home, but they weren't welcome all the way in the home. And what Paul is, is really just fired up with the Corinthians about is they have decided that these sinful pagan practices 
can just be Christianized and adopted into the church. And so when they gather together to eat the Lord's Supper, the the wealthy arrive early. And they enjoy this large feast where they have all that they want to eat and all that they want to drink. And their poor brothers and sisters in Christ come later when they can get off work, later when they have time, and they they sit in this kind of outlying area. And, And usually the food that they would receive is one of two things. It's either the leftovers from the feast that the wealthy people don't want, or it's whatever they happen to be able to bring with them that day. And so now I think we can, we can understand a little bit more why Paul says your meetings do more harm than good. Because they, they've decided, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ, but our economic standing is more important than being part of one new humanity. The fact that I'm rich and I need to be respected for it is more important than the fact that we are brothers and sisters and we stand even before Jesus Christ. They've decided they want their status carried into the church, into their small groups, into their home groups. They want to be respected. They want to be known. They want to enjoy all of the privilege of it. Now, notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say that it's wrong for them to enjoy a nice meal. He doesn't say that they should never do that. What he's saying is just separate that from the gathering of the saints. You can have it if you want to have it. That's fine. But if you don't have enough to share with all your brothers and sisters, I mean, Paul, he's almost turning into an elementary school teacher here. If you don't have enough for everyone, keep it in your bag, right? Like, don't get it out. If there's not enough to share, we're not going to do it. We're not going to play that. But, but they're just isolated and they're alone. And, and so for you and I today, that the question that 1 Corinthians 11 provokes in us is, are there ways where we still allow our economic standing to create barriers and divisions in the body of Christ? And I can't answer that for you. Only you can as you surrender to the Holy Spirit. But if you find yourself thinking, I don't really like hanging out with people who don't make as much money as me. If you find yourself signing up for a home group and thinking, man, I hope nobody signs up that doesn't have the the time and money to bring good food. If you find yourself making some of these statements, if you find yourself thinking, I I just, I really just want to hang out with people who are like me. I don't want to have to feel bad about, you know, talking about going on vacation. I don't have to feel bad when I pull up in a nice car. I don't want to have to feel, if if these are your primary concerns in building Christian community, my encouragement to you would be read 1 Corinthians 11 very slowly and very carefully and ask God to change your heart. Because what Paul is saying is, look, you you can't, he says, look, you have homes to eat and drink in. But you are so concerned with your status and with your appearance that you are willing in one room to eat yourself sick and drink yourself drunk while in the other room your brother or sister goes hungry. Division has warped their view of community. And division has killed their ability to build true and lasting relationships with each other. And so again, I I do not think This is who we are as a church, and yet this is a passage God kept leading me back to over and over and over. And so all I can assume is either maybe it's a struggle that we're not quite aware of, or maybe it's an attack the enemy's getting ready to launch. But either way, we're going to be aware, and we're going to pursue the unity that God has for us. 
And just in case we still don't get it, Paul finishes with one last big point. He says, if you live in a community without unity, you're humiliating each other. He says, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And so, again, what Paul's telling us is, hey, listen, if, if your primary concern is elevating yourself over others, what you're really concerned with is how quickly can I humiliate someone else? And I, I don't believe that there are believers who wake up in the morning with a desire to humiliate their brothers and sisters in Christ. But if we follow the patterns of culture, that's what we wind up doing. We wind up creating exclusive communities within the body of Christ. We wind up creating division over differences that Jesus intended just to be part of our diversity and a reason to celebrate. We rebuild walls that he's torn down. And in doing so, we humiliate those who have less than us. And I don't believe that's in your heart. I don't believe that's in my heart. I don't think there's anyone in the room who would say, I hope before the week's over, I can humiliate a few people. And I can just really make them feel miserable and less than, and, and really maybe even they can question their salvation, their place. That's not at all it, but that's what Paul said. He says, if you give into division, that's where you end. That's what happens. Because they already know they have less and you're just saying, hey, come worship Jesus and we're gonna rub your face in it. Come watch me eat all I can take. And oh, you're hungry? Here's some communion. Maybe you can have a little bread at the end. It's humiliating. It's devaluing. And the opposite of that is love. To treat your brothers and sisters as your brothers and sisters. To give of what you have. To share generously with each other. And and so if if you're here today and and you have ever had that experience of being humiliated by other Christians. Of of feeling like you were outside. Like you weren't good enough. I just want to tell you that that is not God's plan for your life. And that is not the purpose of the church. And so if that's been your experience, we are so sorry that that's been it. And my prayer for you is that you will begin to find what it means to live in real community with other believers. My prayer for us is that all the ways that that we have been taught to divide ourselves and all the ways that we have separated ourselves from others, we will come today in humility and we will repent and lay those before the Lord. And we will recognize that differences are not a reason for division, but they're just a cause to celebrate the beautiful diversity of the body of Christ. And that as we surrender to the scriptures, we find that we are at peace with God, we're at peace with each other, and we've been recreated into one new humanity. This is our goal with home groups. It's our goal with everything we do at Christian Chapel is to help individuals understand you're at peace with Jesus. And because of that, you can live in community because you're at peace with each other. If you belong to him and I belong to him, we belong to each other. And the enemy's gonna come and try to create all kinds of walls of division and separation. But we do not have to be a community without unity we can work towards the community that God's created for us. 
we can put our effort into it. We can ask the Holy Spirit to speak, to lead, to guide, to reveal, to convict when necessary. We can trust other believers to come alongside of us, to call us onto the path that God is laying out for us. We can be the believers who throw open all the doors of our home and welcome people in to eat with us, to enjoy life with us, to celebrate the power and the presence of Jesus with us. We're all invited in, we're all at peace with him, and we can all live at peace with each other. We stand with me, I wanna pray for us, and then the band's gonna come, they're gonna lead us in a final song today. Jesus, we come to you today and we are thankful, Lord, that we get to be a community of unity. Lord, that you have connected us to you and through you to each other. Jesus, I pray for those who may be in the room or online with us who've never made that first decision to surrender their life to you. They've never taken their place as your sons or your daughters. And I pray today, Lord, that you would call them into that relationship that they would know they were created to be at peace with you, to be part of this one new humanity that you've created. And Lord, from that, may they begin to experience the life-giving joy of true and lasting community, of deep and meaningful friendship and relationship with other believers. Lord, I pray for us as a, a local church, as a, a congregation of believers. Lord, will you help us to be a unified community? Will you help us to understand that there are differences, but they do not have to cause division? The Lord, what unites us is greater than anything that would separate us. And so Jesus, we come inviting the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit to not only bind our hearts to you, but to also bind our hearts to one another. Lord, I pray for those who for some time have existed on the edges of Christian community. They've never fully invested of themselves. They've never made it a priority in their schedule. They've never put all of their time into it. Lord, I pray that you would begin to call them in and that they would see the thing that unites us is greater than anything that divides us. And there's a joy, a life, a peace, and a hope that are only experienced together in Christian community. Lord, will you unite our hearts to you and to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.